although those first films are missing, even from the descriptions, the plot descriptions, you can you can sort of see the fatty character. In his first Keystone, in his first Senate film, uh, The Gangsters, he's his character. He's already that character. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's Nitrateville Radio's 50th anniversary. That is, it's episode 50. And we welcome back one of our favorite film scholars, Steve Massa, to talk about his new book, Rediscovering Roscoe. We also remember film history and critical figures who passed away in 2019, including Eileen Bowser of the Museum of Modern Art. And I hope your New Year's resolution was to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at your favorite podcast app and to leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts so others find out about us too. Thanks. TCM and the Oscars have their memorial segments for stars, directors, even writers. But I want to honor the kinds of people who we focus on here at Nitrateville Radio. People who save films, write about film, tell us what we need to see, what we need to see in it, and how we can see it. Here, starting at the beginning of the year, are the figures from the vintage film world who left us in 2019. Jan Wall was a popular children's author who also wrote about working with Carl Dreyer and knowing Louise Brooks. I met him as a frequent attendee at Cinevent and Cinesation. He was 87. Ron Hutchinson was the founder of the Vitaphone Project and responsible for reconnecting countless early films with their audio preserved on disc. We talked about his work at Nitrateville Radio in February. He was 67. Gilberto Perez was the retired head of the film department at Sarah Lawrence College and author of The Material Ghost, Films and Their Medium, in 2000. He was 71. A trio of classic film TV presenters passed away this summer. Los Angelinos knew Tom Hatton as the host of Family Film Festival on station KTLA. He was 92. Australians knew Bill Collins as Mr. Movies and as the author of The Golden Years of Hollywood. As Nitrateville member Brooksy put it, every Australian who developed an interest in classic film in the past 40 years can somehow trace it back to Bill Collins. He was 84. And before TCM, American Movie Classics viewers had the example of a genial presenter of classic films in Bob Dorian, who passed at 85. 
memo from David Selznick is one of the great movie books of the 1970s, taking us into the process of making movies like Gone with the Wind. Its author, Rudy Bellmer, also gave us books on Errol Flynn, Daryl Zanuck, and more. He was 92. Nitrateville member Marilyn Slater devoted herself to keeping alive the memory of a still underrated early woman filmmaker, the comedian Mabel Normand, at her site Looking for Mabel Normand. In the 16mm Film Society days, the MG Film Library catalog was the print version of Grandpa's Attic. Murray Glass's library of mostly silent films was where you went for a low-priced rental on everything from Yvonne Mujikin features to Lloyd Hamilton shorts that you just had to see. He was around 94. Robert Evans was the last of the red-hot 70s Hollywood producers and wrote one of the great unvarnished Hollywood memoirs, The Kid Stays in the Picture. He was 89. Martin Hart was a graphic designer who did retro posters for the Arclight Theaters in L.A., but he's best known to film buffs for his astonishingly detailed site devoted to the history of Cinemascope and other widescreen processes, the American Widescreen Museum. Many actresses have gotten bad reviews. Few have dumped a plate of steak tartare on the critic's head. But that's what Sylvia Miles did to the legendarily vituperative John Simon, who reviewed movies with a slashing scalpel for many years, before giving up on the form entirely and becoming an equally acerbic theater critic. He was 94. Thomas L. Sesser and Peter Wolin belong to the same generation of 1970s writers on film, in fact working together in the 70s on a film journal called Monogram. L. Sesser, who taught in the Netherlands and died in December at 76, was an important scholar on European cinema, from Lang to Lars von Trier. Wolin, who taught at UCLA and died just days later at 81, wrote Antonioni's film The Passenger, as well as the seminal work of film structuralist theory, Signs and Meaning in the Cinema. Brian Taves was a film archivist at the Library of Congress, who burrowed deep into Hollywood history to produce works on the producer Thomas Ince, the director Robert Florey, and the influence of Jules Verne and P.G. Woodhouse on cinema. He was 70. Eileen Bowser joined the Museum of Modern Art in 1954 as a secretary in the Department of Film, rose to associate curator in 1966, and full curator in 1976. Besides curating the D.W. Griffith Collection and other acquisitions, she was a mover in the development of FIOF, the International Federation of Film Archives, during her 39 years at the museum. She died at 91.
We'll get to my conversation with Steve Massa about his new book on Roscoe Arbuckle in a moment. But to continue with the memorial theme, Eileen Bowser, who died on Christmas Eve, was Massa's friend and mentor for many years. I asked him to tell us a little bit about her legacy and what she meant to him. Eileen started at, at MoMA in 1953, and she was hired as a secretary. And she had been an art history major. You know, she didn't, there weren't any film programs. And she really, at that point, uh, didn't have that much experience with film. You know, she was coming more from an art background. And she was, uh, she got assigned as secretary to Richard Griffith. He was uh, the second uh, head of, of the MoMA film department after Yeah, Iris after Barry. Iris Berry. And so she, she got this job, and then she got interested in film, and she educated herself. She went through the collection. Uh, they set up a group uh, that did regular Saturday screenings, and this group included people like Susan Sontag and Edward Gorey, <laughs> and they, they called themselves Foofs with friends of old films and they met every Saturday and they basically screened everything in the collection. So she learned the collection that way. And that was her real first film education, but she really educated herself. And so after about 10 years, she became a curator. Then I think it was 1976 that she became the head curator, the head of the department. So she kind of worked her way up through the ranks and then she was head of the department until 1992. Okay. And how did you know her? Well, the way I first met her in 1985, uh, she was an officer in FIAF, which is the International Federation of Film Archives. She was very involved in FIAF, and in 1985, MoMA, she put together a slapstick symposium, a two-day slapstick symposium at the museum. Uh, under the FIAF auspices. And uh, I was, I don't know, I was about 30 at the time, but the film interest was more of a hobby uh, for me, but I was very obsessed by it. And I heard about this symposium, and the person that I heard it from had told me, oh, they're looking for people to help identify uh, some of the people because they're going to look at unidentified films. And, of course, that wasn't true. Uh, it was only the archive people who were going to look at, you know, oh. <laughs> do the identification. But I, I was working at the Regency, which was one of the big revival houses, and I got her phone number, and I called her and sort of naively volunteered my services. But she was very nice, and we spoke for a while, seriously on the phone, and she ended up inviting me to come to the two-day symposium. And that was my first sort of contact with the archival film world. And it was a real, you know, kind of an epiphany moment, eye-opening for me, uh, just the scope and everything of, of silent comedy. And it was after that that I started programming and started writing about, you know, silent films. And then I stayed in touch with Eileen. And then over the years, we actually became close friends. You know, and a lot of the films that, like, Ben Modell and I have shown at MoMA were films that she repatriated. Um, silent comedies from a lot of places like Czechoslovakia and Eastern Europe. Uh, so we were sort of doing things with the films that she had brought over. So we always had her involved in the programs. Because we could always ask her, where did this come from? And, you know, that kind of thing. So she was a champion of silent comedy in particular, you think? 
yeah, that was sort of her favorite. I mean, she was championing all kinds of silent film, but silent comedy was kind of her pet. You know, she really, she really did a lot of inroads uh, with those films. She was very fond of Harold Lloyd, the, the Lloyd Shorts. I think that's how her interest in silent comedy started with those Lloyd Shorts, and then kind of went out from there. Well, tell me a little bit about her involvement with Fiaf, because I know that's a that's a big thing that we don't really hear much about, but I'm sure it's behind the scenes of so much of what we're. In, you know. Well, yeah, as far as what gets preserved and what gets restored, and you know, it's all kind of through Fiaf's auspices. Um, I can't remember. She got involved pretty early, I think, in the 1960s. And I know for a long time she was recording secretary. She had a lot of different positions, you know, in FIAF, but she was a very big FIAF supporter. And you said that she uh, read your your books as in progress? Oh, always, yeah. yeah. She was a great help on Slapstick Divas. She actually helped with the editing. She took a look, and she was very old-school editing, so she was a huge help. And uh, she did look at quite a bit of, of Rediscovering Roscoe, you know, the most recent book. And I, you know, brought her finished segments, sections to look at. And we went over a lot of the photographs. And, you know, she did. She was always saying to me that she was afraid she wouldn't live to see it finished. And she, she really just missed it by a couple of weeks. Good evening. If you just listened to this podcast, I want to let you know about something that's going on right now at our site, nitrateville.com, the annual Watch That Movie Night drawing. We all pile up things we mean to watch, whether that means literal piles of DVDs or a list of things we plan to watch on streaming. Watch That Movie Night, January 24th, is when we all watch something on our list, then talk about it at Nitrateville. And to sweeten the pot, every year Kino Lorber contributes titles for a giveaway. This year it's three Alfred Hitchcock sets, the British International Pictures Collection, Blackmail, and Murder. So check it out at Nitrateville, post what you want to watch on Watch That Movie Night, January 24th, and when you do, you're automatically entered for the drawing. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. That situa- the position about, uh, is this job still open? Oh, you are a baker. Yes, sir, and I sure need dough. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> well, there's the kitchen. You can start in right away. Thanks. Well, baker, how's everything? Say, what's the idea of the two bowls? Oh, this, uh, this here is for the 20-cent bread, and this is for the 10-cent bread. Yeah? Well, why is that 20 and this 10? <laughs> the cat fell in this this morning. <laughs> That's Roscoe Arbuckle in the 1932 comedy short In the Dough, his last film. Scandal can color a career for sure, but it's hard to think of another case where a major figure in Hollywood history saw his work so completely obliterated by scandal as Roscoe Arbuckle. The result is that one of the key chapters in the development of screen comedy has been lost to us for decades. Slowly, Arbuckle's screen work has been recovered, 
And now Steve Massa offers a comprehensive reappraisal of this early comedian, arguably second only to Chaplin among comedy stars of the teens. Not only as an on-screen personality, but as someone helping to develop screen comedy in its infancy. Steve Massa's new book, Rediscovering Roscoe, The Films of Fatty Arbuckle, came out in December from Bear Manor Media. I spoke with him recently in New York. If anybody, the events of his life has kind of overshadowed his work for basically a century. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's Arbuckle. And one of the things that seems essential to rediscovering him really is looking at him film by film, not going by the legends and stories of his life, but, you know, looking at the actual work. Yeah. Taking a look at the films, like you said, film by film, looking at the work itself, because there's been, you know, a number of books, but the focus has been on the scandal, like the day the laughter stopped and, and, you know, uh, it's always, they'll, they'll cover his career before the scandal, and then the bulk of the book will be about the scandal and the trials, and then maybe there's a chapter afterward, you know, that just kind of jumbles all the, the latter part of his life into one little quick kind of thing. So they don't really, they, they, you know, his, his work as a director of sound shorts really hasn't been examined. Uh, the, the shorts that he directed in the, in the silent era with people like Lupino Lane and Lloyd Hamilton, uh, that, those really haven't been examined before. Well, and also the, the body of his silent work that we probably have the easiest access to are the ones with Keaton. So he's overshadowed yeah. in his own way. He becomes the second banana to his second banana. Well, that's true. And, and I know for years that some people like Walter Kerr, when he would write about those films in uh, The Silent Clowns, he had this kind of attitude that, well, anything that was funny in those films had to come from Buster. You know, it couldn't have come from Arbuckle, you know. So they were just, everybody's deferring to Buster, you know. If you look at a through line from the films before through the comique, you can see how much of it is Arbuckle. Yeah, I think that's the thing that you start to see. I mean, the essence of, uh, you know, an auteur in the French sense is recurring themes. And if you're going to see recurring themes in somebody's work at some point, you figure they probably deserve the credit for them. Yeah, definitely. And and the good the good thing with Arbuckle is a pretty large amount of his films survive and are available. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, how many, I mean, as you go film by film, how many films is that total, really? Well, estimated... You know, I think there are some films he made for Selig that we don't know about. But it's around, like, the ballpark is about 218. And then I think about 148 are known to exist. So that's actually a pretty good batting average, especially considering the scandal and how his films were, you know, kind of disappeared for a while. Yeah, not surprisingly, it's it's like a lot of the Paramount features that are among the missing because they're yeah. basically suppressed and um, and I, like the Selig films right at the beginning. I, I, do any of those survive? I didn't notice if no. Unfortunately, none of those are known to uh, survive. And there's one film short that he did for Nestor also uh, for Al Christie, and that's not known to survive either. And I'm sure I'm sure there were some others that he did that we don't know about yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about uh, you know his his earliest days. I mean, you say I mean not surprisingly he got kind of got his start doing minor stage work. You know, turning up. I mean, obviously he was a type from an early age. The the big. Oh man. yeah, he got well. You know, he kind of started his career. 
somewhat like Oliver Hardy, you know, singing for illustrated slides, that kind of thing. <laughs> he did a lot of that early. But then, of course, you know, because of his size and because of his shape, he, you know, naturally gravitated towards comedy. But he was very busy uh, in West Coast theater. I mean, he worked with Leon Errol, because Leon Errol had a company. He worked with uh, Ferris Hartman, who is pretty forgotten today, but he was sort of, you know, a big West Coast comedy empresario, and people like Walter Catlett and Lon Chaney and different people, uh, you know, worked for Ferris Hartman. So he was he was pretty busy in the West Coast, uh, and uh, that's where he met Minta Durfee, his wife, because they appeared together with a company, in, I think it was San Francisco. Um, so, you know, he was pretty pretty well known, and all the time he was doing these films at Selig, he started working for them in 1909, but it was very sporadic. He would sort of work for them between the theatrical jobs. But all that time, he was very busy, um, you know, playing in theaters on the West Coast. Do you think his persona was already kind of developed at that point, or did that come later? It seems so, because although those first films are missing... Even from the descriptions, the plot descriptions, you can you can sort of see the fatty character. Because uh, um, in his first Keystone, in his first Senate film, uh, The Gangsters, he's he's you know he's his character. He's already that character. Which is what? Well, he's sort of a uh, he's almost like a mischievous, fun-loving fat boy. You know, he's he's he doesn't seem to take anything too seriously. He's um, you know, he's very mischievous. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, especially in the early ones, you know, where he and Mabel are on the farm and they're kind of farm sweethearts and, and usually they want to get married and the parents don't want them to, so they elope and, you know, all those kind of misadventures kind of thing. But I think it was his same kind of stage persona. There's a, oh, I had something I couldn't use in the book. I just couldn't fit it in. But there was a review of a production I think it was from San Francisco in 1911, and it had Roscoe, it had Minta Durfee in it, and it had Al St. John in it. Huh. And it must have been a Keystone comedy on stage. Yeah. <laughs> Free Keystone comedy on stage, because I'm sure he and Al must have been doing some of the same bits. They just ended up putting them on film. Well, and it seems like Keystone, you were going to make it a Keystone if you could just step right in as your persona and, you know, start doing stuff. It took Chaplin all of two films to arrive at his eternal persona. Yeah, to hit the ground running. Yeah, he just naturally takes what he already is on stage and wherever else and, and makes it work. Well, the nice thing is that MoMA, Museum of Modern Art, has a beautiful 35 print of the gangsters. Because for years it was all people saying, oh, he just played a bit part in that. But no, he's really the co-star with Fred Mace. So you can really see he just steps right into it. Well, I think, too, it's it's one of those things where in comedy, you know, I, I know you can recognize these people, but a lot of times I'm watching it and, you know, unless I can clearly see Ford Sterling's chin beard, I don't know who's who necessarily. Arbuckle is easy to pick out in a long shot. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, he it, what he did was really defined by his physicality, you know, because he is so easy to identify. The shape, the round head, and the round body. It's almost like a child's drawing, in a way. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, it was a good thing, because he was immediately identifiable. But then, of course, he didn't like being called fatty. Um, can't blame him. Yeah. 
So, it, it, you know, it was kind of a mixed, uh, mixed sword, double-edged sword kind of thing. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. In the reviews, a lot of times he's not even, of his stage work, he's not even named. It's just, the fat boy is very funny. Uh, it says that, you know, too, in the, in the reviews for the Keystones. Yeah. It'll say, the Keystone fat boy, or the fat boy's in this one. Even the first film, the first film that we know he did uh, at Selig uh, called Ben's Kid, he's kind of the comic relief. It takes place on a ranch, and this, this cowboy sort of inherits a baby, and they're trying to take care of the baby, and he's got the baby in the ranch house, you know, at night, and the baby's crying, and all the, all the, all the cowboys are trying to entertain the baby, and Roscoe's character is called Fatty Carter. Yeah. <laughs> so right from the very beginning... He's yeah. kind of stuck with that nickname. Yeah. You know, one thing I've always thought is interesting, I think there's all of, like, one Chaplin short where it's like Charlie does something. I can't remember what it is. But it's interesting that he avoided putting his name in the titles for whatever reason. Oh, yeah, that's true. Because, well, uh, but, uh, you know, that's kind of a sign of how popular Arbuckle was because really up before that, the only person who had their name in the title, well, of course, was John Bunny, but at, at Senate, it was really Mabel. Yeah. You know, Mabel's Lucky Day or Mabel Does This, Mabel Does That. But it wasn't very long. Uh, well, our buckle started, you know, midway through 1913. It's Fatty's Day Off, Fatty Does This, Fatty Does That. And I think that's, you know, it's an indication of how popular he was with audiences at that point. Let's talk about um, yeah his development at Senate because I mean I think to me this is what's really interesting, you know Senate comedy is often so wild and chaotic, but the people who rose out of it, which specifically is Arbuckle and Chaplin, both sort of knew how to like slow the the film down and put its focus on themselves. Yeah, and yeah, learned, they did. Learned that over time. So yeah, tell me what you think about Arbuckle's development. Well, you know, uh, Senate in a statement says that, well, we first hired Arbuckle because he's fat and he's such a great athlete. He takes great falls. But then this is already 1915, and Senate says he's becoming a great artist. I can see it with every film he's developing. And you can see it, you know, at first he's just doing the typical Keystone kind of knockabout, but... As he gets more and more in charge, he does start slowing things down. And within, you know, the, you had to have a certain amount of slapstick for a Keystone short. But he starts putting in comments on, like, marriage and comments on relationships. You know, he has sort of a black streak of humor that he starts kind of putting in. Um, and, of course, the, I think the main step, the biggest step, is when he started directing himself. Uh, which is kind of mid-1914, um, because then he really sort of just takes charge and just starts moving ahead and, and developing and slowing things down and getting better plot elements and story elements. It's interesting in the book, each year at Keystone gets a chapter, which yeah. seems fitting because it's such a rapid pace of development and there's so much contrast from one to the next. Um, you, know, you talk about one film in particular, That Little Band of Gold, as, as representing yeah. sort of an early turning point for how Arbuckle shaped a story. So, yeah, tell me about that. Well, that was, it was sort of a remake of an earlier film, Fatty's Debut, which was a one-reeler. Uh, I think it's from 14, and it's just, you know, it's a very little more regular Keystone knockabout. It's a, he's a, 
the husband, he comes home, his wife and mother-in-law are waiting for him because they're supposed to go to the theater, and he's been out, you know, having some drinks with friends, so he comes home, he's kind of loaded, and they go to the theater, and he ends up on stage and causing all kinds of problems. Well, when he remade it, he added, like, another reel, but, but what he added was more details about the relationship between the husband and wife. Uh, he comes home, and again, he's like half shot, but he's kind of brusque with his wife. Like, she falls down, and he doesn't help her up. He just kind of scolds her for being clumsy, and, and Mabel plays it very seriously. So he, he kind of is examining their relationship, which is something he, you know, they hadn't done earlier. And then there gets a whole extramarital thing. Ford Sterling comes in as a buddy, and... um it's just, you know, he was um, very smart about just complicating and adding more nuances to the stories. Where do you think that came from, this desire to stretch slapstick comedy? I think it was his instincts. You know, I, I don't, I think it was, after a certain point, it was definitely conscious. Because he does talk about it when he came to the East Coast in 1916. He and Mabel Norman left California and they came to Fort Lee and they made films like he didn't, he didn't, uh, the waiter's ball, things like that. He, he talks about trying to cut out more gratuitous slapstick and have a reason behind everything. Um, I think at first it was just instinctive, but then he started formulating. And, you know, they had to, they turned these films out so quickly. I don't think he had a lot of time to think, except maybe in retrospect it would hit him. You know, oh, yeah, we're trying to do this. I'll try and do more of this. But, you know, the, the pace of production was, um, you know, incredible, the way they just had to keep cranking these out. Which I think is, is a two-edged sword. I mean, on the one hand, you're working so fast, you kind of don't have time to think. On the other hand, if you're thinking, eh, that wasn't quite as good as it could be, next time I'll do this with it. Next time was next week. You could get right yeah. on it. <laughs> so Exactly. You know, you could think, well, we've done this this way already. Why don't we try this and make it different this way? Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it's definitely a benefit. Yeah. Well, you talk in the, you know, going film by film, I mean, that could, that could be repetitive. But what I thought <laughs> was so interesting is there's so many biographies of people who go on to do interesting things. I mean, for every occasional bathing beauty who disappears from films within a year or two, I mean, I was, I was reading about, you know, Beatrice Van, who wound up writing for Bella Lugosi, you know, for a Bella Lugosi oh, movie. Oh, The Death Kiss, yeah. yeah. I mean, she or, had a long career as a writer. Or there's uh, a... a uh, sort of juvenile leading man type named Wallace McDonald, and he turns up as the producer of things like My Name is Julia Ross in the 40s and things oh, like that. Oh, Face Behind the Mask. Yeah. You know, he and, became head of Columbia's B unit in the 40s. Yeah, and so, you know, and then obviously some people who, who really were well-known and went on to long careers like Henry Lehrman, Edgar Kennedy, um, Nick Cogley, I thought was an interesting one, you know, went on to quite a career as, as a supporting actor and so on. Yeah, as a character actor. So all well, these... a lot of these people were in the industry for years, but a lot of them we just don't know at all. And it's just the Senate was such a training ground for anything. Again, cause oh, you're, yeah. you're working so fast and everybody, you know, there's a certain, certain high level of, of talent there that, that spawns other talent. And... Well, and you have somebody like Charles Parrott, 
you know, Charlie Chase, and yeah. you know, he started at he started at Nestor as well. Uh, did a few films there, and then ended up working at Senate. And you know, he's he's always I always thought you know, silent comedy's Renaissance man because you know he directed for such a long time, and then he came back in front of the camera as Charlie Chase. And, yeah. uh, well, such a protean talent, I think. You know, he's just he could do everything: write, direct, star. Yeah, there's some. Uh... Keystone, some Chaplin Keystone short where you can spot him as two different extras in different parts of the same <laughs> film, and it's like there's a go-getter, there's someone who's gonna <laughs> who's gonna make it. Yeah, yeah, and he worked, you know, a lot with Arbuckle, and particularly in 1915. He's in a lot of those films, huh. like Fatty's Magic Pants and Fatty's Faithful Fido and things like that. And he must have been contributing gags and things like that. Yeah. Do we know anything about Arbuckle's working relations? I mean, obviously, he must have gotten along with his uh, was it cousin, Al St. John, or nephew, or whatever he was. Oh, his nephew. Yeah, no, Al was, I think, six years younger. But, yeah, he was Al's nephew. And I think when uh, there was a period, um, Roscoe's mother died when he was 12 years old, and he got shunted around, you know, to a lot of different relatives. His father wasn't the greatest. Uh, and I think when Al was born, Roscoe was living with his sister and her husband, Walter St. John. So I think they were together, you know, when Al was a baby, Roscoe would have been about six years old. And I could imagine what their play must have been like when they were children, you know, in the house, knocking everything over. Well, they were very, very close in all their lives. And who was it? Um, James Niber interviewed Buster Crabb years ago, and Buster Crabb, um, Al St. John has supported Buster Crabb in some westerns oh, okay. in the 40s when he was fuzzy, you know, sure. his later incarnation as the western sidekick. And Jim said that Buster Crabb said that they would talk about Roscoe and that Al would cry, uh, you know, talking about him and sort of what a raw deal he got and the way things ended up and stuff. So they they were extremely close. One thing I was thinking about, you know, again on this thing of the production, you know, week by week turning over so fast. Um, it seems like he kind of had maybe more than one persona, and I think you could say this about Chaplin too. That uh, you know, depending on what genre the the comedy was going to be this week, you sort of had sometimes you had tender, you know, endearing fatty. Sometimes you had rambunctious, mischievous fatty. Well, I think that's true. Yeah, mischievous, rambunctious fatty. And then you had more sensitive, and you'd have a little more middle-class fatty, you know, where he was more middle-class, and, and Minto was his wife. But then, oh, there was also another persona, which I refer to in the book as Fatty the Tough. But he was more of a Bowery type, like a lower class. He'd wear a derby uh, Fatty's Faithful Fido is a good example of that character, but he'd kind of wear a long sleeve sweater, and he'd have a derby kind of tilted to the side kind of thing, and he was kind of a street-tough version of the Fatty character. So he did have sort of different, you know, compartments of the Fatty com- character, basic Fatty character. Tell me a little more about working with Mabel Norman then, because, I mean, I think that's the other the other big collaboration of his of his career is is the films with her that really are kind of 
to me almost like proto sitcoms in some way. They're they're yeah. they're reaching towards something else besides slapstick comedy at Senate. It's true. I mean, it's definitely true. And they were, I think, his second or third film. I think it's the Waiters Waiters Ball or something that was the first time they appeared together. And according to legend, she was an early champion of his because I don't know. I mean, there's stories that Senate. Oh, I was going to get rid of him. You know, he was always going to get rid of somebody, it sounds like. <laughs> the stories, but Mabel, you know, it said that Mabel sort of said, no, you know, he's really great. You have to keep him and this kind of thing. Was kind of a champion. But those, those films they did together, <laughs> it's like they took kind of the thing that Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Drew were doing, but added slapstick. But they still, you know, there's, there's a lot of elements about what it is to be married and married life and that kind of thing that they do explore, which is more than like your average slapstick film. Well, compared to Chaplin, where the wives are nearly always these Gorgons who are, you know, taller than him and 30 years older than him and all kinds of things. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, they were, you know, they were definitely a couple. Well, it's, you know, they progress kind of because in the earlier films, they're, like the the farm lovers, yeah, you know, and they run off to get married or elope because their parents are against them getting married or whatever. But then eventually they become a little more middle class and more of your kind of average married couples, you know, a little bit older, a little more established, like Fatty and Mabel's married life. He's a businessman and he wears, he has kind of this suit that he wears. It's kind of an odd suit because it has kind of a belt around the sport coat kind of thing. You'll see it in a number of the films where he's, he's supposed to have a little more money than, you know, just the, than the, than the suspenders and overalls and the plaid shirt kind of fatty. Uh, Do you feel like that kind of tracks with his own station in life? Cause I feel Chaplin's films very much change as his life circumstances change. Yeah, it must've, you know, as, as he's getting more comfortable, he's going to be, you know, I'm sure he was exploring that, you know, and I think these, you know, these guys, they kind of worked where they were coming, where they had, they were working from where they had come and sort of where they were at the moment, you know, how things had changed. And I think they were looking for everything, any kind of situation for comedy in their everyday lives. All right. So he get, then um, in uh, what, 1917, he goes to Kamik. 1918? Yeah, he came to New York and made some things for Senate in Fort Lee. And while he was here, they shot some stuff at Palisades Park, amusement park. A reckless Romeo was shot there. Uh, and that was owned by Joe Skank and his brother Nicholas Skank. And anyway, while they were up here, Roscoe got in touch with the Skanks. And then Joe ended up, they set up a company, Kamik. And that was, uh, you know, for Roscoe's own films when he left Senate. His contract, his Senate contract expired at the end of 1916. And plans were already made for Kamik, you know, once he was free from Senate. Right. Now, it's interesting. You say that he kind of goes backward a little bit from where his his Keystone films were going to that more sort of character-driven way. And it's not surprising a lot of times somebody has a a new position and they sort of go back to what they know works. Well, that's true. And you can see it in the butcher boy because 
of the first film they did for Camille, because The Butcher Boy is sort of all the ingredients that had worked or what he had kind of learned, you know, for all the time he had been with Senate. And he kind of put it all together in a kind of a crystallized form, you know, and it really launched the series because it was a huge hit. And, and he, you know, he also is, he's just brought Buster Keaton into the mix too. So you've got one of the great tumblers, physical comedians ever. So with he and Keaton and Al St. John, you, you know, you can't help, but it's going to be some kind of slapstick rally, you know, with all these, these, these people that can do almost anything. Do you think the the Kamique films overall are kind of kind of in that same vein, or do you feel like he continues pushing where he'd been going at Keystone toward the more character? Well, he gets he gets back to it. I think at first, and also he was very generous as a director and as a performer. As Keaton always said, that Arbuckle didn't care who got the laughs as long as the laughs were in the film. So, and this was true at Keystone, too, where he'd give a lot of business to the other players. You know, when he was director, he'd have other players getting a lot of the laughs. And he did the same thing with Kameek, you know, where he'd give a lot of the opportunities to Buster and Al to get laughs, or Luke, you know. Um, but I think he does sort of, uh, as the Kameeks go on, he does get back to, you know, more sophisticated themes and, and that kind of thing. Now, what was the, you know, if if he had had a certain dynamic with Al St. John in a lot of these shorts, did that change when Keaton came into it? Because it's a little like having two, sec- two competi- competitive second bananas. Yeah, it's true because, and then before the comics end, Al actually leaves. I don't think he's in the last two. And then... Uh, like uh, the and Buster and and Roscoe are kind of working as a very tight pair in backstage. No, he is in backstage. It's the garage and the hayseed, uh, the last two that Al's not in. And you've got Keaton and Arbuckle really as a team. So the dynamic did change when Buster came in between. But they often use Al as the villain. He's off like an out west and things like that. You know, they'll have him be this outrageous villain. Uh, so he started filling more that function. Did Keaton ever play a villain, really? The only thing I can think of where he was a villain was um, the Frozen North, yeah. <laughs> right? Which, we, uh, which Arbuckle wrote. Yeah, and that's you know because they were spoofing William S. Hart in Revenge. So, <laughs> but I, that's the only thing I can think of Buster playing the bad guy. Yeah, I was trying to think if there's anything where he kind of torments someone else deliberately because it seems so off his persona. All right, so the Kamek films, hugely successful. Uh, Paramount basically winds up screwing the Skank Brothers on this. Cause yeah, they, 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 they outbid and, you know, they wanted, because Paramount was releasing the Kamek films. And then Jesse Lasky in his autobiography just says, you know, we wanted the whole pie, basically. Yeah. You know, they were making so much money that they just, they wanted Arbuckle for themselves. And, you know, because Paramount was somewhat prestigious, they had to put him in features. Right. You know, they couldn't make shorts with him. They had to put him in features. And it, it is sort of counterintuitive because they take this this king of the sh- short comedies and put him in a fairly serious Western. Same thing that happened with Keaton with the Saphead, I think. You, f- you have a pre-existing piece that was from the stage 
that basically isn't comic, and you add a little comic business to it. But I don't know why did they want to make straight actors out of these guys. Well, you know what I think, and they did it to Mabel Norman as well when she signed with Goldwyn. The first thing, uh, trying to think what the title of it was, but it was fairly serious that they were trying to put her into, and that didn't get released first. And then they made the, but they were more very stage bound kind of plots and comedy. And I think it was a thing because you know comedy shorts audiences loved them, but they weren't prestigious at all. Right. You know, I think the industry as a whole, looked, looked on them as sort of poor stepchildren, even though they were making tons of money. You know, it wasn't classy. Right. Uh, you know, it was rowdy. You, could, you know, a lot of people thought they were vulgar. And they were, which is, you know, we're glad today. But, you know, to, to really get kind of uh, industry status, I think you had to aspire to a more serious fare. And I think that was the idea. Uh, behind putting him in the roundup, and he's very good. Yeah, no, it actually is a really nice film. It's uh, a good film, and he plays it seriously, but kind of lightheartedly, you know, with a lot of humor, and it works. I think it works really well. Now we only have so many of the Paramount films uh, after it, um, but how would you characterize, you know, his character in in the ones that survive? Well, you know, the the second one exists, Life of the Party. And again, he's he's very, this character would end up, from what I can tell from all the synopsis, you know, fairly comfortable, middle class. Um, and I think they started out like with um, Life of the Party's very polite comedy. But we also have Leap Year, which is one of the last. And that's more farce comedy which I think suits Roscoe better uh, because he could get in a lot more physical business to kind of liven up the more polite plots. And I think there was a transition, which we don't see from them starting him out in polite comedy and then eventually inch, inching him into more farce where he could, he could really do more. And, and the plots bear that out as well. There are three that, that exist, three features that exist, but they're not available. Uh, they're in foreign archives, and, and unfortunately, they're they're not available at this point. But he did nine features, and at the moment, there are only three, you know, that can really be seen. Roundup, Leap Year, and... Life of the Party. Yeah, those three are the ones. And the ones that do exist, but are, you know, at this point, not available. Uh, the Traveling Salesman, Crazy to Marry, and Gasoline Gus. All right, so then the scandal happens. He's barred from the screen. We all know that. Um, Keaton is one of the is maybe the first to give him work um, as a as a gag man. He does a little directing work on Sherlock Jr. Yeah, which is a a story we're not quite sure what happened there. Well, it's, it's yeah, it's uncertain how much he actually worked on it. It's. It's fairly certain that he did work on it, because even the trade magazines at the time talk about it. There's various stories. Keaton told the story in his autobiography that they got Roscoe to direct it, but he was very short-tempered, and he got really angry, and Buster just decided it wasn't working. So he says he went to Marion Davies and suggested that Roscoe direct a production she was going to do of The Red Mill, and she did hire him, but 
the only problem with that story is the Red Mill didn't happen for three years. Right. <laughs> so I think Buster's compressing a lot of things. But the first thing that Roscoe did after the trial, he was writing things for Buster. And I do think he was directing some of the Al St. John Fox comedies. Uh, because all of a sudden at that point, Al starts taking directorial credit. And uh. in the two or three that exist, there's a lot of sequences that seem very much kind of Arbuckley kind of things with split-second te- split timing. Right. And in, in one of the films, um, Hilliard Carr, Fatty Carr, turns up basically playing the Roscoe Keystone character, the <laughs> country bumpkin, and even repeats gags from some of the earlier films. So it looks like, you know, Roscoe's recycling a little bit of material here. And then they set up a company called Real Comedies Incorporated. So he could direct films anonymously. Um, And some of his contracts still exist, and he was the producer and director. He was responsible for everything. Now, what is the point of blacklisting somebody if you're going to talk about him in the trades anyway? (laughs) That's what I don't understand, because they do. They talk about the trades, talk about him directing uh, Sherlock Jr. Yeah. And that's where the will be good name came from. Right. Uh, Because it's it's released, he's saying that Roscoe Arbuckle will be directing Sherlock Holmes Jr., which is what they called it originally. And he'll be using the name will be good if you get the joke and all this. And Buster claims he gave him the name Will Be Good, and I think they did it as a gag. But then it kind of stuck later. So he also goes on stage, where obviously the uh, Hayes office did not reach. No, but sometimes some of the communities weren't all that happy to let him on their stages. But he was pretty successful doing that. But once in a while, they'd hit a community where the ladies' clubs would get, you know, get upset. Right. You know, and another one that that you say uh, really shows his handiwork is uh, he made some films with Poodles Hannaford. Yes. Uh, who I think is a fascinating character because to me he looks like Dan Duryea, and I expect him to be in a noir, <laughs> and instead he's doing horse tricks and being a comedian named Poodles. Oh, yeah. You know, he was, uh, he was from a big circus family, and he had this writing act that's legendary that they did at the New York Hippodrome. There's a Poodles film. I think is it. What's the name of the one that uh, that they they're going to reuse footage from Handy Andy, which was one of the. Oh yeah, it it came out eventually as Front. Okay. Because we didn't talk about Handy Andy. Actually, that that was a film. Handy Andy was something when Roscoe finally got acquitted after his third trial. They moved a bunch of people like Joe Skank and people moved to make a short with Roscoe to put him back on the screen. So they started shooting something called Handy Andy. And they, I don't know, they didn't shoot for very long, but then it, then Roscoe got banned by Will Hayes, even though he had been found innocent. And that put the kibosh on Handy Andy. Well, then when they finally set up Real Comedies Incorporated to, for him to make shorts that he was directing, like the first one is Handy Andy, or no, the second one. Easter Bonnets was first with, um, uh, what's his name, Harry Tighe and um, the comedian from the Gold Diggers films, uh, Ned Sparks, oh. you know, with the boys. Yeah. Um, but then the second one is Handy Andy, and in, if you see the stills, Poodle is very much dressed like Roscoe. And according, it's a lost film, but according to 
trade review reviews that there was a big sequence in the second second reel where he's mostly working with his back to the camera. So I'm wondering, did they try to use some of the Roscoe outtakes from the original, you know, shooting of Handy Andy? To yeah, which is but, funny because they're not at all physically similar, even even if you pad even if you pad poodle. So that could just be conjecture, but it's kind of interesting. They're saying. You know, there's such a big deal made about him working with his back to the camera. Right, right. Sort of like, well... Evoking we'll the days of, the Fr- of Roscoe Arbuckle, yeah. Uh, we'll never know unless the film turns up, right. you know. So he works for various studios, works for Educational and other places, directs Al St. John. Um, and mm-hmm. then back into features, you know, I mean, the Red Mill's a big expensive production so i, I was yeah, thinking of it as sort of like the the it's a mad 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 world of the of the 20s well yeah and it has kind of the same structure i mean i hate to say it but the film's kind of a mess yeah when you see it i mean it's just it's never really funny enough and then it has these the plot veers all over the place and the ending she gets locked into this haunted windmill and yeah. they try to go for this thriller kind of ending and uh, but there were a lot of, they hired Roscoe. Marshall Nealon was supposed to direct it originally. But Roscoe ended up being hired, but Hearst, William Randolph Hearst supposedly was not that comfortable. So he he got King Veter to be on the set to kind of watch Roscoe. And, you know, that was, I'm sure, an uncomfortable situation for Roscoe. But then in, in her autobiography, Marion Davies talks about, they brought other people in too because, uh, Eddie Mannix directed some of it, and, and uh, other George Hill, I think. They brought in other people, so it's not surprising that it turns out to be kind of the hodgepodge that it is. Yeah, but it seems like there are sort of Arbuckle-esque gags and kind of oh, yeah. giant-sized gags, as as he might have done. I think so. I mean, I think a lot of it, and there were people, uh, Owen Moore is in it, and he had worked with Roscoe before, Louise Fazenda. Uh, you know, who we worked with at Keystone. Um, and the good thing is, it, it did well, and then he did get the other offer to uh, direct Eddie Cantor in a feature. Which one uh, was Special that? Delivery. Special okay. Delivery. And that, that does exist. We were able to show it. The Cantor family has a 16-millimeter print. It was Eddie's print. And uh, we were able to show it at MoMA in 2006. But it hasn't been around very uh, very much, but it's a very good film, and it's very well directed. It's very tight, and Cantor is very good. Uh, it's a good film, but again, there were some problems. They had to change the plot because uh, Eddie's a mailman, and then there was supposed to be kind of a mail robbery, but the government wouldn't let them do that. <laughs> they could, they wouldn't let them have any kind of mail robbery, so they had to change some of the plot, and they ended up bringing Larry Seaman in to direct to to put in some extra gags. And when you see the film, you can spot the Larry Seaman stuff right away. <laughs> yeah. It's chasing on a motorcycle in a sidecar, you know, run, trying to catch a train and that kind of thing. You know, shot for shot, it matches with a lot of the, the earlier Seaman films. Right. But there's a lot of Arbuckle in it, too, a lot of signature Arbuckle gags. And it was pretty, pretty successfully done. It was a good film. All right, so sound comes along, and now William Goodrich... You know, has has something of a career. He directs uh, or does some gags, I guess, for uh, the Cuckoos with Wheeler and Woolsey oh, yeah. and things like Wheeler that. Wheeler and Woolsey. Well, at the end of the twenties, after Special Delivery, 
um, Roscoe was doing pretty well with his stage appearances, and I think the features were difficult experiences for him because he really didn't have control. It was people like Hearst or, you know, who had control, and I think he got a little turned off, and he left films. And he was doing pretty well. He also had some, uh, he had a club, a Roscoe Arbuckle's Plantation Club, and he appeared there. It was a nightclub, and he had made investments in, like, a big hotel. Um, so he was out of films for about three years or so, but what brought him back was the Depression. Uh, he'd lost money. He'd lost some of the investments. He had to sell the Plantation Club, and so Hollywood had work for him. So the first thing he did, he did some writing for Senate on a couple of Senate shorts because he was supposed to be under contract to James Cruz and then loaned him out to Senate. So he, he worked on the scripts of a couple Senate shorts, and then he worked on the scripts and behind the scenes with Wheeler and Woolsey on the Cuckoos and Half Shot at Sunrise. And Burt Wheeler talked about working with how uh, Roscoe would sort of work with them on their routines uh, before the director, before they actually shot the routines. So he'd be sort of directing behind the scenes. And then he, he manages to get back in front of the camera. Um, what, do you yeah, think, what do you think the attitude change was? Well, I think it's been a long time coming. I mean, there were people for years who kept saying, you should give Fatty Arbuckle a chance. He was found innocent. And, you know, and I think it was just maybe the initial, oh, I don't know, outrage or, you know, finally kind of, and the newspapers were terrible during the trials. I mean, you talk about yellow journalism and these doctored photographs and they're laughable now when you see these composites that they put together with him with a gin bottle or him behind bars. I mean, it's just the most sensational things. But people believed it when they saw them, and now you could just see how doctored they were. Um, so it was just, you know, it was so such a circus, such a media circus. It took a long time, I think, for that to kind of settle, for people to kind of really kind of look at it in a, in a more realistic kind of way. Yeah. Well, and also, and, I mean, from... From the early 20s to the early 30s, I mean, it's more than 10 years that passed. It's yes. whole, The whole world changed in that time. You and know, the Depression I, came. It was the end of the Roaring Twenties, the Depression. So, yeah, things had changed a great deal. And he was in the industry. He was busy. You know, he never stopped working. Yeah. As a, you know, because he directed all those shorts for educational. He was their director general of comedy shorts from about 1929 to 1932. And he directed some things for RKO as well. So he was just working nonstop. And I guess, you know, finally Warner Brothers decided to take the chance and put him back on the screen. And they did, uh, the first one was Hey Pop, and it was very successful. So they, you know, they ended up making six of them, and they did very well. So the audiences were were receptive to them. Yeah, they got great response, and people were, you know, happy to see him back. And, uh, you know, and the sad thing is that at the end, um, they were talking about, you know, maybe doing a feature with him. And they were going to do more shorts. And, uh, you know, but the good thing is, I think, he died happily, you yeah. know, because his comeback was happening, was in progress, you know. He'd been waiting 10 years t- to get back in front of the screen again, or to get back on the screen. And uh, he, he finally made it. It was happening. So looking at his career as a whole, um, I mean, how, how would you characterize 
his his path as a as a star and filmmaker um, over the long haul. Well, you know, he was very. I think as a director, he was very innovative because he 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 had a knack for setting up physical business in a very matter of fact way. It was very sort of organic. Things would kind of flow, and and he that was a, sort of his hallmark as a director. He never pushed things. He was very good in early sound because. sound wasn't a problem to him. He just kind of used it in a very natural way. So when you see these sound things he directed, they're not dated. They they work very well. I just think he was a natural. He was naturally funny. I mean, as a performer, he he was so light and agile, you know, in contrast to his round size. And he had amazing dexterity with props. You know, the way he'd throw the knives behind his back and they'd flip and, and land point up yeah. on a table or, uh, you know, flipping flapjacks behind his back and things. He was just incredible, you know, the things he could do. And he did them very effortlessly. You know, everything was effortlessly. But, I don't, you know, I don't think his character had a, a lot of complexity. It wasn't like Chaplin or Keaton who had much more complex characters i think the the arbuckle character was you know kind of just a simple kind of funny guy um but you know the the world responded to him i mean there was that point where he was i think second only to chaplin worldwide popularity well i think that is also why he could be paired with mabel normand and you liked them as a couple you found them endearing you know yeah. in a way that, that neither chaplin or keaton really formed that sort of attachment on screen you know, and he was he was very good working with with women like comedians with mabel and when he was directing in the sound films he directed two series where the protagonists were women uh, he did a series for educational about uh, these three girls that uh, were trying to break into the studios, and they made six of those. And he did a couple for a series in RKO as well. These girls were more like gold diggers. But still, he was you know, directing and writing these films with women comedy protagonists, uh, which is kind of unusual for the time. All right. Anything else that you want to say about his, his career, about your book? or? Oh, I'm <laughs> trying to think. The book is fairly hefty, like, like Roscoe himself, but I guess that's appropriate. Um, you know, I really tried, and it's a little tricky, especially with some of the films that are lost, you know, to try and get some kind of flavor of what they were like, you know, and how they fit into the overall scheme of, of, of his career and of his filmmaking. Um, that was kind of a trick, but... Uh, you know, I think it's just, it's, it's really long overdue that he really deserves that kind of attention. I mean, no one's done a films of Roscoe Arbuckle before, you know. They always focus on the scandal. And uh, he's a great, he was an excellent filmmaker and he's a great comic. Uh, so I was happy, you know, really wanted to do, that's why the book's so hefty, because I really wanted to, to give it the attention I thought he deserved.
links for Steve Mass's book are in the show post at nitrateville.com. And I also posted some suggestions from Steve for Arbuckle Films to watch online, to see his work at different phases of his career. So check those out and get a quick silent comedy education on your computer. Thanks to my guest, Steve Massa, and to Jack Theakston for assisting with the memorial list. And thanks to all you foofs, friends of old film, for coming back for another year of these podcasts. Music is by Kevin McLeod, with a little help from Mr. Scott Joplin. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and leave us a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.